Today's episode is sponsored by one of my favorite brands in the world, Kettle and Fire Bone Broth. I have been drinking bone broth for a really long time now, and as you've seen sometimes on my story, I will replace coffee with bone broth, and I know that sounds really crazy to a lot of you guys because you can't get your day started without that cup of joe, but let me give you something else to try. Kettle and Fire Bone Broth. It comes in all kinds of sippable flavors. It's non-GMO. They're made with grass-fed bones. It's so incredibly healthy for you. And not only that, it's really good for your hair and your skin and your nails, and it's great for gut health. I mean, really, it's basically a miracle, heavenly, delicious thing that you can have in the morning that's good for you and good for your soul, and it tastes even better. And you know what else is great? If you use the promo code WILDLOVE, you get 10% off, and um, you can join me in this. And I'm going to be drinking bone broth, by the way, for the next three weeks. So join me. Let's see how we feel, and let's do this. Much love, guys. You guys have heard me talk about this before, but it's because I absolutely love these sex toys. Sweet Vibe toys are my favorite. Now, they're all under $50. They come in really bright, fun colors. And I really haven't found something that just, you know, gets my O. (laughs) So I hope you guys check them out. It's sweetvibe.toys online. And if you want to have your own O, use our promo code, which is WILDLOVE. Have some fun. On today's show, we have Jessica Raven from Decrim New York. This is a really important podcast and actually very, very interesting. We dive into all of the laws and regulations and rules around sex trade in New York and how to keep people who are buying and selling sex safe. It's super important. I hope you guys give it a listen. I know a lot of these topics can be a little bit challenging, but please open with an open mind and open heart. Enjoy. Well, it's another day. We're back at Gotham Studios. We're back at Gotham Studios, where they've been very good to us. And we're with um, a guest that we tried really hard to get. We tracked you down. (laughs) We were so excited when we realized that we could get you on. This is Jessica Raven is with us today Mm -hmm. from Decrim New York. A really important organization that we really want our listeners to know about, and we think they'll feel inspired by it. And we have so many questions for you. Yes. I, <clears throat> excuse me, I was uh, listening to a podcast, and this is the first time that I heard of Decrim New York and fell in love with the whole organization and what you guys are up to. Um, so give us, tell us about it. What What are y'all up to? Sorry. Yeah. What well, are you trying to decrim? Yes. And so what many does things. decriminalization <laughs> mean versus legalization and everything? And then yeah. we want to hear about you. Yeah. So, well, first of all, thank you for tracking me down. <laughs> um, <Love>. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm like, excited to run. be here. You cannot hide. <laughs> we will find you. Yeah. So, um, Decrim New York it seeks to decriminalize, decarcerate, and destigmatize the sex trades in New York City and state, and to ensure that people who trade sex have access to their basic needs, whether they're trading sex by choice, by circumstance, or by coercion. Um, so it's a really broad mission and we're trying to decriminalize a lot of things. Um, I think the main thing that people are focused on is, um, buying and selling sex, of course. Mm, Um, but there are actually a lot of other laws that are used to target and criminalize sex workers. So one of our big priorities right now is to decriminalize what we call the walking wall trans ban, which is essentially stop and frisk for, um, black trans and cis women. Um, Uh basically police officers can target and harass, 
people that they think are sex workers under the um, loitering for the purposes of prostitution. Right. This is a really broad law that Mm -hmm. you guys have been working on for some time. Basically, a police officer can simply use this baggy rubric of loitering Mm -hmm. and say, busting you, coming over to you, talking to you, giving you a hard time because you're loitering. And arrest you even because it's against the law to occupy public space while appearing to be a sex worker. And Uh, how how do they know? Maybe you're wearing a miniskirt. Maybe you're trans. Maybe you're a black woman. That's how they decide. So it's it's really just profiling um, people that they believe would be sex workers and arresting them for it for occupying public space. So how long has this um, practice been going on in New York? And tell us about how decrim came into being, because it seems like that was one of the laws that you all really organized around, yeah. seeing how unjustly and unfairly um, it was being implemented and see, like that that was one of your big ways in for the yeah. organization. That's one of our big campaigns right now. Um, it's a practice that's been going on for a really long time. And even now, DAs have um, have deprioritized prosecuting um, walking while trans or, or loitering for the pur- purposes of prostitution, but the same communities are being targeted under other laws. So maybe it's low-level drug possession or maybe it's um, fair evasion or fair beating. So um, it's really just—so when we say decrim New York, we're, we're trying to decriminalize these communities who are frequently targeted. Um, right. so, so it's pretty broad. Um, and this work has been happening for a really long time. Sex workers have been organizing for over a decade here in New York and um, across the country, across the world. The first one that I heard about was in the late 80s when I was an undergraduate or in the 80s. It was called Coyote, mm. Cast Off Your Old Tired Ethics. Yes. That was the first time that I heard about women who, at that time, they called themselves prostitutes, not sex workers. And that was the first time that I heard about these, they were mostly cis women mm-hmm. organizing and yeah. saying there's power in having a political voice and in coming together. That was really, that really blew my mind. Coyote really blew my mind. Yeah. And now here we are like in a new day. Yeah. And the sex workers rights movement has evolved so much. So I just moved back to New York. I originally grew up in New York, but just moved back from D.C. where we had Decrim Now D.C. I don't know if you'd heard about um, the movement there. Mm -hmm. We modeled a lot of Decrim New York's bylaws and and vision off of what we were doing there. And it's the leadership was uh, black and brown, trans and queer women, but especially trans, Mm. uh, black trans women who are, um, you know, pushed out of so many forms of employment, experience housing discrimination, experience racism, transphobia, sexism, and then turn to the sex trade to survive and then are um, criminalized for what they do to survive. So I think historically, the sex workers' rights movement has really lifted up you know, this idea, like my body, my choice. And now we're we're trying to convey, it's actually more complicated than that. There are yeah. a lot of people who don't choose sex work or who would prefer other forms of employment if those forms of employment were available. And there are people who are trafficked and we have to talk about all of that. So actually, all of it. like talks about, that's why we say choice, circumstance, and coercion, because we recognize that like all people who are trading sex we all need the same things. We need an end to criminalization. You know, policing isn't helping us. Um, we need housing. We need access to resources. It's all all the same things. And the, the strategies that have been used to um, fight trafficking are actually not that helpful for trafficking victims. What this, are they doing for that? Oh, my goodness. 
Um, a lot of criminalization. So, um, so for example, like you've probably heard of large organizations like Polaris or the National Human mm-hmm. Trafficking Hotline. Um, the idea behind the hotline is essentially it's a good idea in theory. You call the hotline if you ex- you're experiencing trafficking or if you witness somebody who you think might be trafficked. And are these like you know when you go to the restroom sometimes like in Vegas mm-hmm. and other areas you see like you the see poster the in the bathroom that yeah. says if you are being trafficked or if you see it or hear it. Mm-hmm. You see it a lot in hotels too and mm-hmm. in, in airports. And uh, there used to be a big campaign in cabs in New York City. Do you remember this a few years ago? I do. Remember there was that, yeah. a big campaign in cabs. These are the signs of that somebody's being trafficked. Here's right. what you can do to help someone, and here's what you can do if you've been trafficked. Right. So, and, I, I maybe I'm a little. I, I don't know about this world too much. So, mm-hmm. when you are being trafficked, I, clearly you're not able to get away. Yeah. Because you're usually somebody with you. There's somebody watching you, or you're being threatened, or you're so psychologically coerced okay. that right. it's hard for you to even imagine Think walking getting away. That. And that's much more common. It, it shows up much more like domestic violence than you know people being chained to like whatever. You know, like I, I think there is this image of trafficking because of movies like Taken um, mm-hmm. with yep. Liam Neeson a few years ago, where like it's suburban white teenage girls who are being snatched and by, you know, men of color in particular. And that's just not the reality. The reality is... not what's happening, um, people. Yeah, it's actually people who are already trading sex who are most vulnerable to trafficking and exploitation Mm -hmm. in the sex trade. Just like any other industry, you're not likely to be trafficked into, like... um, the agriculture industry, if you're not already a farm right, worker. Right. So the people who are most vulnerable to trafficking are sex workers. People who are already trading mm. sex. And it the, you know, the things that make people vulnerable are homelessness, um, criminalization, fear of turning to the police because you know that you're already trading sex and so you're Ugh. likely to be criminalized. Um, and yeah. for young people, for people under the age of 18, the, there doesn't even have to be a trafficker. So the vast majority of young people who are trading sex actually don't have a trafficker, but their experiences are legally defined as sex trafficking because um, they're under the age of 18. And that one's really complicated mm-hmm. because the reality is, you know, who do you criminalize in those situations? Mm-hmm. Like who, who goes to jail? So often it's the trafficking victim and so often their needs are not met. And again, it's usually homelessness. Usually they have been um, and this was my experience, you know, yeah. there's our queer and trans kids who've been put out onto the street, who have been neglected by the foster system. S- schools have failed them. The foster care system has failed them. They're and out so on they the street. What they have to do to survive. And then they say, how can I make some money, right? Mm-hmm. And then to criminalize that behavior, now where's your support? Right. Zero. Right. Where well, really what people need is housing. People need resources, but that's a lot more complicated and expensive. And so instead, you see a lot of organizations putting up ads, just call and, and right. we'll solve the problem. But who do you call if there aren't enough resources? Mm-hmm. If the reality is there are there are only 4,000 shelter beds for 12 to 17-year-olds across the United States for more than 500,000 teens. There are, half, there are half a million homeless teens <laughs> in this country 4, and 4,000 beds for them yeah, in homeless so how shelters. Was, so maybe we make the call, then what? So What's maybe we created <laughs> trafficking. Maybe, right. Can you talk, this is amazing. That's an amazing statistic Jesus. and shocking, right? It's shocking. It and heartbreaking. Really irritates me. Yeah. Yeah. And angering. Is that a word? Mm-hmm. Um, infuriating. <laughs> Most people have, Fucked to up. your point. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <Let's> <laughs> It's fucked up. Yeah. 
really, really <laughs> fucked up. Most people have this idea, as you said, of like, it's like a the Liam Neeson movie. Mm-hmm. People are trafficked from other countries. And sometimes women and men and children are trafficked from other countries. But mostly, from what I understand, sex trafficking in our country is from, it's happening within the U.S. And so we've really got to adjust our lens. It seems like that's part of what you're doing. I also want to say the interesting thing that you guys are doing is, of course, you have to because this is what's going on, but you added an intersectional lens Mm -hmm. to what previous organizations were doing. And this is so comprehensive. Also, when you're talking, not just talking about gender, but we're talking about race, we're talking about economics. And this is such an ambitious agenda to attack this issue by attacking underlying issues like homelessness, employment. Okay, walk us through what the biggest steps are that you guys are taking now, what you're most excited about, and how we can help. Yeah. Um, So what I'm personally most excited about is public education efforts. I think so for the most part. Like people just don't, um, don't know enough about this issue. There's moral panic about sex trafficking, but people don't know what causes it. Um, And people don't want to, you know, see sex workers out on the street, but sex workers don't want to work on the street either. People want to be housed. People want to be indoors. But even another law that we're targeting is the criminalization. So there's a law that's on the books in New York. It's like um, housing lewd persons. So literally housing a sex worker is criminalized. And then that pushes people out into the street where they're vulnerable to trafficking. So we just want to do more public education. Actually, on October 5th, we're going to be doing a canvas in um, Harlem. So we've been doing a lot of street art, chalking, wheat pasting, um, and just talking to neighbors about about this issue and about what we actually need um, versus what's been proposed. What do you think keeps people so kind of out of the know and also resistant to this movement or learning more about sex trafficking and sex work? Yeah, I think one of the big problems is that a lot of these anti-trafficking organizations are led by like white saviors who don't Mm -hmm. believe, you know, who conflate sex work with sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. And they're not the same. It's not the same. You can be really (laughs) supportive of sex workers who haven't been coerced and really concerned about people who have been coerced into sex work, right? Right. Why do we have this divide? Because they believe that all sex work is exploitative. And so it actually makes it harder to address trafficking and exploitation. If you're saying this whole industry is exploitation, then how do you distinguish when someone is saying, hey, no, actually I'm being trafficked and I need support. Right. Um, And their whole strategy is, you know, get people out of the industry, which if that's what they want, then fine and good. But some of what us want next? to be What's sex the workers. Next yeah, you know exactly, and and that we have to respect people's bodily autonomy and choice in the matter. And if we don't have alternatives, then we need to support people in surviving in whatever ways they need to and thriving. You know, yeah. like wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> okay, talk to us a little bit about the difference between decriminalization, decriminalization, sorry, and legalization. Yeah, so, because it's a it seems like a fine point, but it it's a big difference. And somebody had to explain it to me, and I need you to explain it to me again. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and it seems like there's from what I've been hearing is some people want it only decriminalized, and some people want it legalized. Exactly. There's so like two different camps. So I, I actually don't think there are a lot of people who want it legalized. Okay. Um, there there is a big misconception, and this is partially our opposition tells people that we want to legalize sex work, and that's not our goal. Our goal is to decriminalize. And the reason um, that we're fighting for decriminalization and not legalization is because 
Um, all decriminalization will do is remove the criminal penalties associated with mm. trading sex. So mm-hmm. we just don't want people to be arrested um, and vulnerable to police violence because they're trading sex. But what legalization would do was it would it would introduce new regulations that could actually exclude the people who are most marginalized in the sex trade. So especially like people who are undocumented, um, people who are trans. You know, we have a legalization mm-hmm. model right. in Las Vegas, and then I think in what's the other country? Um, it's not New Zealand. There's there are a couple of other countries that have legalized sex. The work. Netherlands, I think I'm it's not the sure. Netherlands. It could be the Netherlands, or maybe somewhere. it might be New Zealand. Actually, no, New Zealand mostly decriminalized. Okay. Yeah, um, I can't remember who's legalized, but um, in the countries where we've seen this model, they the people who are most marginalized have been shut out, and so mm-hmm. their their experience in the sex trade is still criminalized. That's not our goal. Our goal is it's to another center. level of institutionalization, and then you're doing the institutionalized racism right. and sexism. Exactly. And, right. So if you're experiencing homelessness and you're trading sex just to you know access housing or to like make money one night, but maybe you don't even identify as a sex worker, but you are trading sex you wouldn't necessarily be able to meet any requirements that are established mm, okay. by a legalization model. And we're we're concerned about those people, street-based workers. Right. Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of people would fall through the cracks with exactly. legalization. And it would be another form of social control almost where people would be failed by another institutionalized right. law or penalty. Yeah. How far do you think we are from decriminalization? Um, I think that we've come a long way in a really short period of time, and that's been amazing. The fact that we're talking about this issue on a national stage, the fact that um, presidential candidates have been asked for their positions on decriminalization, um, we've made a lot of headway in just a few years. So in D.C., when we first introduced our bill to decriminalize sex work back in 2017, I remember folks, we only had one co-sponsor on the bill, um, and folks were saying, well, this is just a conversation starter. And that was October of 2017. That wasn't so long ago, Jessica. that bill is getting a hearing um, this October, October 17th. Wow, there's a couple weeks. Yeah, exactly. So they might actually decriminalize sex work in D.C. Um, And it's only been, you know, a year and a half. And if our, if our listeners are passionate about helping, I hope we can get this up in time. Yeah. yeah we how, do that. What can they do to help push this bill forward and how can they support it and yes. just support decriminalization? In D.C., they can call their council members. They can show up to the hearing on October 17th and testify in support of decriminalizing sex work. Here in New York, um, they can get involved with canvases and public education work um, and even just start having conversations with their neighbors, with their community members, with their work colleagues, with their friends about sex work and about the need to decriminalize. And what if they aren't in D.C. or New York? Like, I'm in Austin and I'm passionate about it. What can I do? Mm, I wonder if there's a swap. So usually there are, I, I'm not sure what's happening in Austin right now. There are a couple of cities that are starting to talk about decrim campaigns. I know they're starting to talk about it in Portland. Um, and But I think, you know, just public education, sharing articles, talking to friends and neighbors about this issue, getting those conversations started. Kind of what we're doing now. Yeah, or, yes. Or is. get in touch with Decrim <laughs> New York and ask them, how do I start Decrim Austin? Yes. How do I, right? Maybe some of our, or Decrim... Yeah, if uh, it, Boulder yes. or if yeah. anyone in Austin is listening and wants to start a decrim Austin, DM me. Yes. Let's make this happen. I would definitely support that. <laughs> um, okay, so 
Why do you think this happened so fast? You said it only took two years. Because I agree. We're in one of the most reactionary political moments this country has seen in decades. And Mm -hmm. yet you've been able to push forward a conversation about decriminalizing sex work. How did that happen? Well, um, (laughs) what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think that we've seen, while I definitely would not prefer for Trump to be president, we've seen people mobilize in a way that they never had before, like with Mm -hmm. the Women's March, with, you know, like in D.C., there were protests every single day. I think we see that in New York, too. And I think that's amazing. And then another thing that happened in 2018 was FOSTA and SESTA. So there are these two Let's talk about that. Yeah. Federal legislation. One was the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. The other one is the Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act. But the whole strategy with these laws is shut down websites that sex workers are using to advertise And services. like Instagram accounts. Right. And, and Tumblr. Tumblr. Um, now Twitter ridiculous. is starting to crack down on sex workers' accounts. So And not just sex workers, sex educators, yes. which a lot of sex, sex workers. Yes. Yeah, anyone who's Even talking about I. sex. Really? Yeah, we get oh, censored. All the time. Um, so, and sex workers are often sex educators, but often it's people right. who are sex educators explicitly and are not sex workers getting shut down. Mm-hmm. People with sex-positive accounts. So FOSTA says that it seems like it cast a very wide net exactly. and isn't Under helping the, guise the pe- of people. ending sex trafficking, which is what most of these strategies, that these anti-trafficking strategies that we've seen, it's mostly exactly targeting sex workers and calling it anti-trafficking. It's not the same thing. It's not the same. Yeah, um, targeted harassment, you guys, is not the same <laughs> right. as ending sex trafficking. <laughs> Thanks. Just to clarify. Thank you. So um, with those pieces of, like, I I think what's interesting is those two pieces of legislation could have easily passed under Obama. Like, there were only two senators that voted against the um, FOSTA and SESTA and could have easily passed under Obama without anybody blinking. But because there is this heightened awareness, heightened, like, mobilization, people are paying attention and questioning things more than I've ever seen before, um, people mobilized and said, no, this is not okay uh, Mm -hmm. about Foster and Sesta. And it became part of the mainstream conversation. Mainstream outlets like Vice, Rolling Stone, even the New York Times were reporting on this. Yeah. Um, It was a big story. It was. And it also, I mean, put a a lot of sex. Yeah. And and it put a lot of sex workers in crisis, too. So a lot of people um, were, when shut out of websites, were turning to the street so that you saw an increase in street-based sex work, an increase in violence against sex workers, because when you're working on the street, you're more vulnerable to violence by clients, by the public, Mm. and by police. By police. and so it created this sense of urgency that something needs to be done now. And um, we were able to um, start our decrim now movements in that context. Great. Something good came out of yeah. the messed upness of FOSTA SESTA and how it was executed and applied. And even written. And written. <laughs> the whole idea the of it whole... was bad. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I hope that our listeners will like join this. Um, be, be aware of how FOSTA SESTA really is only really harming people who yeah. and not serving the people that it um, set out to. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit if you're open to it, because I know you have a very personal relationship mm-hmm. to decriminalizing sex work. Can you tell us about your journey, how you got here? I know you said that you um, took your five-year-old daughter to school today. So you're a mom. I am. Yeah, I'm a mom. I've been organizing for over a decade. Um, And actually, the way that I got into organizing was, so I grew up in New York City. 
Um, and I went into the foster system when I was 13 and then um, just experienced sexual violence within the foster system. I think so often we think of the foster system as like rescuing kids from, you know, violent mm. households. But again, it's kind of the same. It's like a Band-Aid solution, takes people, breaks up families yeah. and doesn't actually offer any support or guarantee of safety. So I experienced sexual violence in the foster system. And is that from other kids that are in the foster system or from no. the people that are running so I was um, temporarily adopted, and so this is in a in a home, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. and um, and it wasn't my primary caregivers, but someone who also had access to this apartment, mm. uh, and um, uh. and so you know this happened multiple times until eventually, and I you know tried reporting it, tried to get help. It wasn't going to stop. You tried to get help from within the foster care system when you were sexually assaulted within the foster care system. When I was no, 14. And nobody responded. Yeah. No, I was basically, I was blamed, you. actually. I was told that I, <laughs> I won't get into that. Um, but I had a terrible experience and I decided, you know, it, it, I'd rather do this on my own. And so I ended up running away um, and uh, ended up on the street. When you were 14 When I was old, 15, when I you were 15. Um, and I, um, yeah, I really like, I just fell into the sex trade. I didn't even identify as a sex worker. I identified as someone, a teen experiencing homelessness. Um, and it was like, literally I was sleeping on the A train and a guy came up to me and was like, are you homeless? Do you need a place to stay? And that was kind of my entry into trading sex for housing. So I didn't understand back then, it wasn't until recent years, actually, I, that I would have ever called myself a survival sex worker. And that's only because now I understand sometimes you're not even trading sex for money. Sometimes you're trading sex for resources like housing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was what I did. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I don't think I've ever heard that before. Yeah. Um, that was something that I only learned like five years ago when I started organizing around decrim. Um, but yeah, a lot of people are not, I mean, resources, that's a, it's pretty broad. Some people trade sex for drugs. Some people trade sex for food. Some people trade sex for money. Um, sometimes it's all of the above, but yeah, I was trading sex for housing and later money. So this is why sometimes people use the term transactional sex. Mm -hmm. You, it, it's for a transaction, not necessarily exactly. for money. Exactly. So you were 15 years old, homeless, and somebody offered you this trade Right. And yeah. You're living with um, them. Not that first person, no. Okay. Um, but later on, I did end up living with somebody that I had met at a hookah bar. Um, <laughs> and um, where some relationship know. started. <laughs> I love hookah, so. Right. Uh, and it was one of the only places I could get in as a 16 year old. <laughs> Got it. Um, so, yeah, I, I ended up like basically living with this much older guy. Um, who, like, bought all of my clothes, who, you know, like, funded my life when I was a teenager. Um, and then I moved to L.A. when I was 17 and started college. I, like, started actually – even then it was complicated because – uh, because I didn't have like stable, like my own housing, I started trying to live in the dorm in the summer before my freshman year. But that was even complicated because most people don't do that. <laughs> um, and they like when the summer ended, I didn't understand that like there would be a gap and they would expect you to go home or like during Christmas, mm. they would shut down the dorm. Well, so nobody it was, like, really enculturated you, right? Nobody told you like this is how no. this system works. Oh, absolutely not. But also, I mean, it's not built for people experiencing homelessness. Right, right. <laughs> right <laughs> like exactly. where was I going to go? Yeah. Um, and so I, when I moved to LA, someone approached me um, 
and got me into organizing by asking, hey, do you want to help homeless kids? And I was like, oh, like, yes. <laughs> um, and so I started working for in fundraising for a shelter for um, LGBTQ uh, homeless youth who, who had are run away. so vulnerable to, as you said, homelessness, yeah. um, trafficking, transactional sex because, because they don't have other options. often rejected by families because of their queer trans identities. The stigma, um, right? Exactly. Is- and experience violence in the foster system at higher rates. And, um, and so that, you know, that was my passion. Like, how do I work on, you know, ensuring young people like myself who've experienced homelessness, who um, have experienced violence, have access to whatever they need. And I, back then, still thought of it you know, like I never thought of sex or sex work as it was like part of it was packaged with the solution for me. Like the problem was homelessness. Sex was just a strategy to access mm-hmm. housing. Right. Um, and then later on, um, when I moved to D.C. and I was organizing in D.C., I started getting more interested in um, gendered violence as a separate problem because I, you know, really saw it as packaged with homelessness and poverty right. for, because that was always my experience. Um, and I ended up working at an anti-trafficking organization, actually, mm. Polaris, and was, uh, like, very stunned to find that they considered my experience child sex trafficking. And I was like, oh, my God, that sounds really <laughs> Pretty <bad."> serious. <laughs> Uh, And it it took me a really long time to start actually listening to sex workers on Twitter who educated me about the issue because I had so many questions within the organization like, well, how are we actually helping or or meeting the needs of people who are trading sex who are, you know, whether you call them trafficking victims or you call them sex workers, I don't really care, but um, how are we actually meeting their needs? Is right. that is that part of the question that this we're trying to question. ask? <laughs> right. And it wasn't. It really wasn't. It was how oh. do we save people from the exploitative sex industry without a question of, well, where are they going to go? Are they going to jail? Are they going back to abusive foster homes? Are they going back to the street? What happens once you save them from the sex The trade? emphasis, as you said, was on the white savior narrative exactly. repeatedly. We have to watch out for that. Oh, my God. I yes. mean— because then where are we leaving people? Right. You're talking about a more comprehensive solution mm-hmm. about housing, about education, about support, about ending stigma. Can you tell me, I know a lot of our listeners will want to know what can they do to support LGBTQ youth who are homeless yeah. and vulnerable? What can we do? What organizations should we reach out to in addition to Decrim New York? Yeah, I think um, local shelters, you know, there are no, I think, national organizations that are are really meeting the needs of queer and trans homeless youth as well as local organizations. So it's a matter of finding out what those organizations are in your city. I think in D.C., it's Casa Ruby is a great organization. Um, what else? The... There aren't a lot of shelters. There are just like some cities don't even have shelters for LGBTQ homeless youth. Uh, I know Philadelphia, I think, doesn't have one. So, um, so this population is really like radically underserved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so find out in your own community how can you help LGBTQ youth mm-hmm. who are homeless because they have really special needs and vulnerabilities. Yeah, and trade sex at seven to eight times the rate of their cisgender heterosexual peers because they're just experiencing homelessness at higher rates. Wow. So so it's just – it's a wild and crazy and sad, but hopefully, like, it's great that we're doing something about this, you know, and you're so passionate about it. And I know there's so many other people that are like that too, and I definitely want to get involved 
in Austin or here or anything like that. I do have a question that's kind of like different off off basis. Um, so when we're talking about decriminalization, there is decriminalization now of psychedelics hmm. in certain areas and legalization in certain areas. Are you familiar with that? Is it Would it be similar laws to what they're doing? Oh, possibly. I've been following the marijuana decriminalization or marijuana justice movement now, um, but I haven't really followed anything on psychedelics. But I think there are a lot of parallels with the marijuana justice movement. Like marijuana, they started with legalization. Right. It left a lot of people behind. People were still incarcerated and are still incarcerated. Black and, and brown people exactly. asymmetrically incarcerated exactly. for marijuana. Um, and with marijuana, it's actually, it's like, it's almost the opposite. So in in um, decrim of sex work, there are people who say, no, we should decriminalize um, selling sex, but not buying sex. You should still criminalize the buyer. And in the marijuana um, legalization movement, it was let's decriminalize buying marijuana, but not decriminalize selling it. And on both sides, it's like, no, we have to decriminalize both sides right. of the exchange. It doesn't work. So the people who are going to be criminalized are always going to be black, black brown, brown, poor people. people. It's always right. the same communities that end up bearing the brunt of criminalization. Also, where's the line, right? Okay, so let's let's you know, this the Hustlers movie just mm, came out yeah. recently. Everyone's freaking out about it. We were talking about this Wednesday the other day. Since that movie came out, I guess applications at one of the strip clubs in Queens, maybe, mm. doubled. Really? People are like wanting to go and, <laughs> oh, and that's dance and, you know. And so where's the line when, it, when you're an exotic dancer and then you're a sex worker? Hmm. Like, is it you're... Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um, people identify in different ways. And so I can't say, I, I can't tell someone else that they're a sex worker if that's not how they identify. I'm just wondering, I, like, with the law, exactly, oh, right? Because, like, law. even when it oh, comes to, even when it comes to, like, mushrooms, let's say mushroom mm. psilocybin is legal until, is illegal, or it's legal until you pick it, and then it becomes illegal. Oh, yeah. So then if you have an exotic dancer who's dancing and whatever, and then once they, if, is it happen when both people get naked and right. all of a sudden it's right. illegal? No, actually, or like, it's, I think it's super interesting because it's like sex work is legal as long as we can watch, you know, porn, <laughs> stripping. <laughs> like, right. uh, that's fine. But if you do it in the privacy of your home, God forbid, with hotel, your own, with illegal. Your own body. <laughs> right. Right. Like if, if you have any control over the situation, like the more control, like individual control or personal choice, um, the more it's likely it's such it a weird line, right? Like when yeah. you think of it. It's very patriarchal. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, we can see who a lot of the laws benefit and a lot of the criminalization penalizes. Exactly. We, we see a pattern here. Exactly. Um, back to the psychedelic question. I wish that people who... So the psychedelic movement is pretty much a white privilege movement in a lot of ways, although it could serve a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be great if we got the people who are working on decriminalization of psychedelics to help us with the decriminalization right, of this. sex work, knowing how to work the laws, knowing how to work legislators. Not that you don't, but wouldn't it be great to make an intersectional movement that way? Hell yes, yes it would. That would be amazing. Just it's never thought, you guys. We can dream. I'm sure there's, and you can tell me this, I'm sure there has to be some healing involved when it comes to sex work. What do you mean? For, for let's say, like, children that get into it sort mm. of similar situ- situation to you, there may have been some sort of trauma in your past and having to heal that. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, but it's not the sex work that was the problem. The For me, it was the sexual violence. You right. know, it's like, that's the part I'm healing from. And I can draw really clear lines between, okay, I went to this person's house and I did not agree to X, Y, and Z, but then they did it anyway. Like, I can draw really clear lines between what I agreed to and what I did not agree okay. to. And I think that um, when you conflate the two, even for young people, um, it almost discounts our experiences with violence, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, so many people in New York, so many men and women or people who identify as neither that I know in New York have embraced sex work as a way to, you know, get through graduate school mm-hmm. or as a um, thing that allows them to be an artist or that is just like the way that they're making a living voluntarily and enjoying it. It yeah. allows them to do other things. So there are people who, for whom that's what sex work is. Interestingly, this issue about um, how how you entered into sex work, how you learned about sex trafficking, how you got involved, I'm hoping and I'm seeing that you're making the world a very different place for your five-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. What Can you talk about that a little bit, about your hopes for her and the world for her and her peers yeah. related to this kind of yes. work and um, the world? So she actually gives me so much hope. She always comes out with me and does talking and does wheat pasting. She likes putting up the posters. Um, And I talk to her a lot about, like, the harms of policing. And, um, you know, I want her to live um, in a world where people have access to all the resources that they need. Like, she asks me a lot of questions when people on the train or on the street come up to us and ask for cash. And I always explain to her, like, we we have to give what we can always. Um, because people deserve access to resources. You shouldn't have to have some amount of money to deserve housing. Everybody deserves housing. So I hope that she grows up in a world where um, that's the norm, that that's not like there's no deserving of safety and undeserving of safety, Mm -hmm. that that it's just, no, we all deserve to be safe. We all deserve to be housed. Um, And we all believe that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if we're raising a generation of children to believe that housing is a fundamental right Mm -hmm. and well-being is a fundamental right and being protected by the police instead of asymmetrically. Oh, I want a world without police. I don't think that that's even the answer. (laughs) Right. Um, It's going to be a very different world. Yes. Yes. Um, Okay, you guys, the white savior narrative is not working with sex trafficking and with sex workers. So Mm -hmm. how can we support Decrim New York? Yeah. um, So... Like I said, we're one of our the bills we're really prioritizing is to repeal the walking while trans ban. So to uplift that on social media, um, and to if you're in New York to join our canvases, um, to call your legislators to express support for the repeal of the walking while trans ban. And another bill that we're working mm. to pass is criminal record relief for trafficking survivors. So if you were trafficked. Um, and you were criminalized for something else like drug possession or whatever it is that you were forced to do in the context of trafficking, we don't think that you should have a criminal record for that. Mm-hmm. Criminal records act as barriers to um, accessing other fa- forms Housing, of employment. employment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to access I'm seeing resources. a pattern here. <laughs> yeah, kind of, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, just expressing support uh, for those pieces of legislation to your legislators and to the people in your community. Okay. Wow. Great. Thank you, you so, yeah. so, Thanks so for being so inspiring. Thank you for having me. For your hard work, for your um, energy, and for educating us. Thanks for bringing an intersectional lens to our show and to your work every day. Oh, I appreciate it. And you. your activism. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Such a fun episode. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. And if you did, please go on to iTunes and leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Um, It really helps the success of the podcast and spreading this message. Much love, guys.